We see in the Bible that our sin constitutes a rebellion against the king. If indeed God is the king, what does the king do when there is a rebellion against him? Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we continue in our special series with Pastor Nick called Two Ways to Live, where we examine the six aspects of the gospel. Now we're moving to a message called Rebellion Met with Justice. Before we get to that particular theme here, can you give us a quick recap of where we are in the six aspects of the gospel, Pastor? Yeah, in the last message, we covered the first two aspects of the gospel. The first one is that God is the ruler of the world. He made the world, and he made us to rule his good world, giving thanks and honor to him. And the second aspect is that we all reject God as our ruler by running our own lives our own way. And I think we can all relate to that, don't we? We want a level of self-determination. And by rebelling against God and his way, we damage ourselves, each other, and the world. And in so doing, even though we like to think in the world that, you know, you just do whatever you want and everybody's happy, now we get to the unpleasant part. There's consequences, right? That's what you want to preach about today. Yeah, it's the message that nobody really likes to talk about. But if we never talk about the nature of God's justice and judgment, then we don't create an accurate picture of who God is and how he works. And so this message is heavy in certain ways, but it is true, biblically speaking and practically speaking. And it is so good for us to know what we can expect from God upholding his justice. Now, when you talk to people in your ministry life about this aspect of justice, do they bristle at it or can they appeal to their own inner sense of a need for justice? I think everybody has an inner sense of the need for justice. Nobody wants the bad guy to win. Nobody wants things to be out of place, that God's righteousness is something that we want upheld until it applies to us or somebody we love, and then we want mercy. And so that's why this is hard for us to reckon with. But if you don't understand justice and judgment, you will not understand the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection that follows. Well, a very important series. And today, again, we begin part one of a two-part message called Rebellion Met with Justice. Here's Pastor Nick. God is the king of his creation and of everything in it. And yet, humanity's biggest struggle in life is our rejection of God's rule and the following of our own rule. That is the very core of understanding the nature of our relationship with God. That's the core, that's the the beginning point of the gospel message. And that rejection of God's rule or failure to recognize him as even the ruler and the king and our subsequent rejection is in every way fundamental for us to understand how to live in this world in such a way that actually begins to please him. And yet this struggle, this struggle of rule and reign is the struggle that's defined human history forever. And when you look at our culture today, you can hear the echoes of men and women who have asserted 
their own rule over experience. Os Guinness traces these ideas that begin with the Renaissance and blossomed through the Enlightenment and rose to their climax in the 1960s. A classic statement of the Renaissance view is that of Pico Dea Mirandola as he imagines God addressing Adam and saying, you who are confined by no limits shall determine for yourself your own nature. You shall fashion yourself in whatever form you prefer. And throughout the centuries, similar sentiments of self-rule, limitless potential apart from God, have been expressed by key and influential thinkers. Back in the 15th century in Italy, Leon Alberti says, a man can do all things if he will. Karl Marx in 19th century Germany, man is free only if he owes his existence to himself. Friedrich Nietzsche in Germany, if there were gods, who could bear not to be gods? Therefore, there are no gods. Herbert Spencer in 19th century England, progress is not an accident but a necessity. Surely must evil and immorality disappear. Surely must men become perfect. Walt Whitman, the great author in 19th century England, one's self I sing, a simple separate person. President John F. Kennedy, man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Ayn Rand, the famous author, wrote, man's destiny is to be a self-made soul. And E.O. Wilson, 21st century America, humanity will be positioned godlike to take control of its own ultimate fate. We could quote many more thinkers. We could quote many more contemporaries. We can see how this type of thinking has penetrated culture in profound ways. And it is at the core, the struggle for rule in this life It's a struggle that chooses to recognize God as the king or chooses to recognize self as the king. And it is, in its ultimate understanding, the only way we can understand life with or without God and this gospel. There are two ways to live. (laughs) Two. With recognizing God as the king or recognizing yourself as that ruler. We see in the Bible that our sin constitutes a rebellion against the king. If God is the king and all life originates from him, he is the ruler of all things. That's what we spoke about last week together. This week we posed the question, if indeed God is the king, what does the king do when there is a rebellion against him? (laughs) And the answer that we see in the scriptures is that he delivers justice by executing judgment. What does the king do when there's rebellion against him? The king restores justice, and he does so through judgment. Friends, it can't be another way. Nobody 
wants to think about in our time the fact that God is just and that justice requires something. But God won't let rebellion happen forever. His standard of justice is perfect and it must be met. And the reason why is that because God has these divine attributes that make up who he is, and many of these attributes are inextricably linked, which means they cannot be separated from one another. If they were, he wouldn't be God. This is true of his holiness, of his righteousness, and of his justice. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 says it this way, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Holiness and righteousness demand justice. Take a step back and think about that for a minute with me. You can't have holiness and righteousness in their total expression if you don't have justice. To be holy is to be pure, to be perfectly right in every way. To be righteous, as it relates to God, God's righteousness is the attribute of moral purity as it is applied to his relationships. So God's righteousness is the application of his holiness to those beings around him. To be righteous means that you do what is right, that you think what is right, that you have purity and that you uphold what is right and good and pure, especially as it relates to those around you. So holiness and righteousness are linked in that way. God is perfectly righteous. And so what does a righteous king necessarily have to do when things aren't right? (laughs) Well, to uphold his righteousness, he needs to make them right again. (laughs) And this is justice. Justice is restoring things to their right place. And so... How does God, the righteous king of the world, restore all things to their right place? He does so through judgment. And judgment is the administration of justice. These are big themes, big words. We could talk about all these attributes for a very long time. But holiness, righteousness, justice, judgment, these are attributes and actions of God. They are who he is. And they are in response to our rebellion against him. You probably didn't think your sin was that big of a deal, did you? I know I didn't. But you know, it's not just what you do in your sin or your rebellion against God. It's who you do it against. And perhaps the best illustration I've heard about this came from a pastor who described it this way. 
He says, suppose that a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? The student's given detention. Suppose during detention, the student punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended from school. Suppose on his way home, that same student punches a policeman on the nose. What happens to him? He finds himself in jail. And suppose some years later, that very same boy, now grown, is in a crowd to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, he lunges forward to punch him. What happens? He's shot dead by the Secret Service. In every case, the crime is precisely the same. It's just a punch. But the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. What comes from sinning against another being or another person is not the same as what comes when you rebel against the king of the universe. What comes from sinning against God? Well, the Bible tells us God's wrath and judgment. I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 32, Romans 1 describes for us the logic of how and why wrath is the expression of judgment. This is what it says. Starting at verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves." Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now, pause for a minute with me. And as Paul gives us this big list, all manner of unrighteousness, we see a long list of sins here. I wonder if you see yourself struggling with any of them. Evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of 
envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul gives a description of what rebellion against God looks like, the process of it within humanity, and why, in so many ways, it is deserving of wrath and judgment. Here's just the summary. Here's, here's the, the flow of the logic. God's divine attributes are plain to all, namely his eternal power and divine nature. God makes himself clear to humanity. No one is without excuse in that way. Humans knew him. They recognized him as such, but they didn't honor him nor give him thanks. Instead, they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their darkened hearts, Paul says. And as a result, God let them do so, and they became increasingly sinful in all kinds of ways. That list of sexual sins followed by that big, long list of all kinds of sins that we can all apply to ourselves in different ways. And because of this, God's wrath is being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 2, 2, the very next chapter says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And we didn't think our sins were that big of a deal. Did we? I know I didn't. But God the King judges the rebellion of sinners. And so the warning is that judgment is coming. We've seen the logic anyway. I don't know if we feel it in our hearts yet, but we see the logic, don't we? God's the king, we rebel. What does a king do in the response of rebellion? Judgment. Justice is required. If God is going to be God, that is part of who he is, an attribute of him. The question then becomes, how is this justice administered? We see in the Bible that justice is administered through judgment in a variety of ways and in a variety of chronologies. We see from the very beginning that there's immediate judgment. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They sinned when they ate of the apple, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says this. It says, God, the Lord God sent them out of the garden. That's judgment. To work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Further, we see right away at the very beginning of this rebellion story that there is a curse of sin that is placed upon humanity. They would have enmity with Satan from that day forward. They would have pain in childbirth. They would have difficulty with the land. They would have strife and relational tension with one another. Rebellion against the king meant that everything else got harder. And that is a form of immediate judgment. 
We see in the Bible that sometimes God judges through human agents. Throughout the Old Testament, God used other nations and other people to discipline and to judge his people, Israel. Likewise, at times, he used Israel to discipline and to judge other nations while they were rebelling. There are many examples of this, but maybe most pointedly, Isaiah chapter 45 talks about God, the king of the universe, raising up and anointing a pagan king named Cyrus to judge Israel. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 13 says that God uses the governments of the world in a similar way. It says this, it says in Romans 13, 4, he, the human ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God judges through immediacy, sometimes. Sometimes he judges through human agents. Sometimes God defers his judgment, and his judgment is expressed through our mortality. Genesis 2.17, God warns Adam and Eve, even before they sin, of what would happen if they rebel. He says this, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Physical death was never supposed to be the reality for people. It's the consequence of judgment, which comes because of rebellion. Likewise, New Testament, Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spreads to all men because all have sinned. Death is a consequence of rebellion. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so you see, mortality is part of this judgment. But there's another judgment that's coming. God judges and disciplines during our human life. And we see that our life here on earth is not the end of our existence. Even though the entire world will come to an end, people will live on. And it says in Hebrews 9, 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after death comes judgment. There is a judgment that will happen after we are dead. Jesus warns about this judgment perhaps more than anything else. Many places and many times, Matthew 10, 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Your rebellion is that bad, Jesus says, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast 
into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Thanks, Pastor Nick. You're listening to A Better Word from Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I want to bring Pastor Nick back in the studio because I got to be honest, I'm jealous sometimes when I read the Bible and God like actually directly speaks to people <laughs> or sends an angel. How do we know if God's speaking to us today? That is such a massive question and really, really important question, Brian, because it can be confusing for people as they're going through the very real things of life to say, I need direction from God, but I don't know how to get it. And sometimes we work off of an impression that we have or a thought that we have, and it's really ours. But we say, oh, that just must be from God. And other times we might have a physical sensation and we're like, I don't know if that's indigestion or if that's God. And a million more examples like that. But, you know, God does give us his word and he gives us his spirit. And there's a way to think about how God speaks to us today, because he does. He still speaks to us today. How does he speak to us today? And what categories can we use to understand that so that I can walk through life with confidence that I'm doing what he wants me to do and pleasing him with the days that I have here on this earth. And this resource will really help us to do that. And that resource for your gift this month, to a better word, is a book by Philip Jensen and Tony Payne called Guidance and the Voice of God. I'm sure it will help you if you have questions along the lines of whether God is speaking to you. For more information and to get your gift in today, go to abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.